0: Happy Thanksgiving week to all of you. I hope that you had a great time with your families uh, over this holiday season. Melanie and I were blessed to have her mother here. Her mother, so, my mother in law and my father in law were here. Uh, she was blessed. And um, it was, no, I'm just kidding. I love my in laws. Um, they did go home, right? You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Yeah, we we had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope that all of you did as well. And uh, as we gather to get in God's Word today, it's a special day for us too because we are finally going to be done with uh, First and Second Samuel, and uh, it has been a great study uh, for this pastor. I hope that it's been a good study for all of you. Uh, It's the first time I've gotten to preach through both of those books, and uh, I learned a lot. I pray that I was able to convey uh, some great things to all of you as well, and that the Lord used this study to to move in your life and. It's an interesting finish uh, to this book. Um, As we get into it this morning, I want you to remember that the book of 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, they're really one book. And we're going to see that the way it began and the way that it ended is so very similar. And it's not just that this book ends this way, but there are many books in the Old Testament Scripture that are going to end much like this book. And that is with the necessary understanding that we still need a Savior. We can't look to man... We can't look to kings, we can't look to prophets, we can't look to anybody in this world to save us. We need a Savior who is totally different than us. The gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that we can't save ourselves. And the reality is no other human being can save us that is a son of Adam. And so as we get into this text, I want you to remember that as we deal with David's heart one last time. Most of us, when we look at the heart of a person, we say, well, you can't know a man's heart, but God gives us in his word a glimpse into David's heart. It's not that we would understand it unless God revealed it to us in his word, but there are some glimpses of his heart that we need to grasp today because it's not just David's heart that is really being shared here, but David being like us, we can look into the mirror of David's life and we can see ourselves in this. We can see ourselves in this story, and we can see that in many ways the glimpse at his heart needs to be a glimpse into our own heart. And uh, one of the things that I want to begin with talking about today is this simple truth that sin is an issue that all of us are going to deal with for the entirety of our life. You can't talk about David And you can't talk about any other character of Scripture without realizing that these men and these women are sinners just like you and just like me. I I ate an apple one time, and I didn't, you know, I I look at the apple before I eat it. Like, if it has a bruise on it, I'm going to pass it. I don't know why. I just don't want to eat a bruised apple. Uh, If I think there's a worm in it, a lot of times you'll see the little hole where the worm has made its way out. If a worm's been in it, then I don't want to eat it. And one day I bit into an apple that looked perfectly healthy. There was not a blemish on it. It was one of those that was like pretty red and everything. It wasn't even one of those ugly apples. Some apples are just ugly by themselves. I don't know why God made ugly apples, but some of them are. And some of those, like, I'll pass on just because they're ugly apples. And I bit this one thinking this is like the perfect apple. And you know what I found? Was that inside of that perfect apple was a worm. And I couldn't figure out how in the world a worm Got in the apple. I mean, when I bit into it, I was so disgusted, and it made me want to go look up, how did a worm get in my apple that I can't see how the worm got in my apple? And you know what I found out? Worms get in apples before they're ever created. Back when the apple tree just had a blossom on it, guess what happened? Something came and laid an egg on that bloom, and as that bloom began to grow into what we understand as an apple, now as it is grown with this thing inside of it, the worm finally is born. It begins to eat its way out of the apple from the inside to the outside. And that's how I got fooled. And folks, that is the way that sin is in the lives of people. You may not realize it. You may not fully understand it. But you need to come to grips with the fact that the Bible says that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that by nature, all of us are sinners. That means that from the moment we were born, and even before we were born, understand that when Adam sinned, it was like this worm entered into our heart. And from the inside out... This sin began to grow, and it wasn't until much later that we began to realize that, you know what? We've got this thing inside of us that is working its way out, and it's not pretty, and it's not pleasant, and it's quite ugly. Because here's what the Bible says about sin. We're sinners by nature. You know what that means? When we have a nature to do something, it means we instinctively do it. That's why birds fly. They know to flap their wings and to fly. You don't see people doing it. Fish breathe underwater and they do, you know, they make their tail go and, and they swim. I've never seen a human try to swim like a fish swims. I've never seen them try to draw breath on purpose underwater. Our nature is I'm not a fish. So what do we do when we throw a baby in the water? Not that you throw babies in the water, <laughs> but what do you do? But even a baby's going to know hold its breath. Because <laughs> nature determines our behavior when we think about what that means for us, it means that because we're sinners by nature, this thing is inside of us that given enough time, sin is going to show itself. It's going to find its way out in the way that we act, in the things that we say, and the thoughts that we have. In all of those ways, eventually, sin reveals itself. No matter how pretty you look on the outside, no matter how much you make the, the apple as shiny as you can get it, the reality is there is this thing inside of each of us. That becomes clear in the life of David. What stands out to us in the life of David as we finish this book is that he was a man after God's own heart, and yet we still see in him this struggle. We still see in him this sinfulness. When somebody says that, hey, he's a man after God's own heart, we immediately want to think about perfection. We want to think this person is someone that's not going to have the issues that I have, the problems that I have, and yet we look at the end of David's life, and he's not done struggling. He's not done, even in his old age, committing what he will, by his own admission, pretty much say was the greatest sin that he could have committed. Now, see, if I were to ask you what's the greatest sin David committed, what are you going to automatically say? I think everybody in the room would probably think immediately David or uh, Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, Uriah. And David, when he got caught in that sin, he said, I have sinned. But what we're going to see today, he's going to say at the end of that, he's going to say, I have sinned greatly. And the cost of the sin is going to be great for David and all of the children of Israel. 70,000 people at the end of this chapter are going to be dead. It's a difficult chapter. But I want you to see that even with the difficulty of the chapter, there are some things in here. And at the end of this chapter, we are going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ very clearly in this text. This book ends the way it ends almost always in Scripture. What looked hopeless suddenly seems hope-filled. What seems lost suddenly is found. What seems broken suddenly finds healing. And so much, isn't that the point of the Scripture? Isn't that the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at all of the prophets, they bring doom and they bring gloom, and they're talking about the discipline of God and the judgment of God. But in the midst of all of that discussion, he talks about a remnant. He talks about hope. He talks about salvation. And this book is going to end no differently. So, let's take a look into the heart of King David one last time and get a glimpse into the man that he is and hopefully a glimpse into our own hearts who we've been called to be. It begins in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, and here's what it says. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. You need to remember that fact, that this story isn't just about David. It's also about the children of Israel. And for whatever reason that it doesn't tell us, the children of Israel are in a place where the anger of the Lord "...is burning against them." Folks, you realize the heaviness of that statement when the anger of the Lord burns. Some translations say that their actions incited the anger of God. So it could be as simple as idolatry was beginning to show itself again. It could be the fact that over the last several chapters, we've seen rebellion after rebellion against the man that God would call to be king from Absalom, right? Toshiba and all these other characters have come up. And rather than following God, we find that the Scriptures tell us that the Israelites have forsaken the one that God said should be sitting on the throne over and over. It could be some of those things. It could be something that isn't even mentioned in the Scripture. But all that we know is that it says that God's anger was focused on the children of Israel. And it says, and it incited David... Against them to say, go and number Israel in Judah. Now, when you look at this text, one of the reasons this can be so confusing, a lot of scholars will skip right by it or pastors won't even preach this text because of these opening statements. And I don't know why they, they tend to do that or think that it's not explainable. When you go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you find that this same story is told in the book of Chronicles. The book of Chronicles is just, again, chronicling the things that are going on in the life of Israel with its kings. So you have the stories duplicated in Samuel and places in Chronicles, in Kings and in Chronicles. You're going to see the same story told, and that's why we have to understand the whole of Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible, right? And it would almost look like that God is tempting David to do something that he shouldn't do that he will later judge him for. And that's not true. Let me explain to you what happened in this text. And this is why you shouldn't skip texts like this, just because they're hard. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we get insight into what really occurred. It says that God is angry with Israel. And it says that David was incited. Now, it's not God that is inciting David When we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21, what you're going to find is it says in 1 Chronicles that it was the devil that was tempting David. It was the devil that was inciting David. It wasn't God, it was the devil. And here's something we need to understand about our lives we serve a God who is in control. Can we all agree with that? A God that is sovereign. A God that when he wants to accomplish his purposes, nobody can thwart his plans. Nobody can thwart his purposes. And we get confused because sometimes we say, well, if God is sovereign, then man has no free will. Listen, I would say that in the midst of man's free will, God still maintains his complete sovereignty. I want you to understand that what's occurring in this text is that God is going to judge Israel. And he's going to use David's decision to do it, and he's going to allow the devil to tempt David. I want you to think about this. This is not unheard of in Scripture. Don't we have another character in Scripture? That God released the devil to go do what he wanted to do, and yet his purposes would be fulfilled by allowing the devil to do that? What about the book of Job? The devil came hat in hand. And God said, do whatever you want to do, but don't touch his life. Remember how God put him in a fence and said, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. Go do your best, devil. And God used all of that for his purposes and for his glory. That's the same exact thing that is happening right here. And I want you to grasp this truth, the things that I'm going to say to you right now is that all three of those things played a role, and that means that we've got to grasp as children of God that the power, the casual day-to-day power that we think we exert in this world, it is secondary to God's power. I want you to realize that God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. You say, why is that important? Listen, if you want something to be thankful for this season, remember, be thankful because God's sovereign providence stands over your desires, your choices. If God left it up to us and our destiny wasn't in his hands but our hands, you realize how lost you would be? God intervened. God moved. And he took even our wrong choices And he found a way to use them for his glory. I'm thankful for that. That's what's happening in this story. He works out his will through the action of human will without violating the freedom of those humans in their will. But here's what I want you to see. Continue with me. It says, The king said to Joab, This is the thing that he was incited to do. The king said to Joab, The commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against all the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. We're going to pick up in 8. You'll just see they're saying he went from this city to this city to this city to this city. In verse 8 it says, So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David, or David's seer, saying, go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from before your enemies that pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land now consider and see what i what answer i shall return to him who sent me then david said to gad i am in great distress let us now fall into the hand of the lord for his mercies are great but how or, or but do not let me fall into the hands of men so the lord sent a pestilence upon israel from the morning until the appointed time 70000 men of the people from dan to Beersheba, died when the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, "It is enough. Now relax your hand." And the angel of the Lord, who was by the threshing floor—or I'm sorry, was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite—then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people, and he said, "Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep." What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. I want to start with these first two points, and we'll finish with the third point. Number one, I want us to see that David, like us, has a heart that strays. Believer, you do realize still, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how wise you are, It doesn't matter how respected you are, you realize that you have every potential at whatever place you are in your life to greatly struggle with sin. Why? Because, remember what I said, it's like there's this worm inside of us, right? If you remember, we still walk around in flesh and we have an enemy named the devil and we walk in the midst of a world. And folks, let me tell you something. Those three enemies are great enemies and the reality is they never stop fighting against us. You say, Aaron, who is the believer that is in the most danger? I would say that it is the believer that thinks that they have arrived and that sin is no longer a problem in their life. Folks, when I say don't take sin lightly, I want you to know that you never outgrow temptation. You you might outgrow diapers, and you might outgrow a pacifier, you might outgrow red wagons and little bikes, but let me tell you something, you never, ever outgrow temptation. There's no believer that is sitting in the midst of us this morning that is immune to sin. Here is David, a man after God's own heart, a man that even now in the late years of his life, at the end of it all, you would think that he would have his mess together, that at the end of his life, surely this won't be. I mean, folly is for the young, right? Folly is, is for those teenagers. It's for those young adults. It's for folks who, you know, maybe their, uh, their, their frontal lobe hasn't fully developed. At the end of his life, he commits what I believe he probably would say was his greatest sin. Because it wasn't against a lady named Bathsheba. It wasn't against a man named Uriah. But it was a direct sin against the glory of God. But not only should we not take sin too lightly, I want you to see that we also don't need to let pride gain a foothold in our life. You see, that's what this sin was really about. That's what this story, that's what's really happening. That's what's going on is that we're finding that, you know what, the the beginning of 1 Samuel is much like the end of 2 Samuel. Because in the beginning of the book, remember, the people of God were dissatisfied with God. If you remember, the people of God were saying to the prophet Samuel, we need a what? We need a king. Give us a king. Everybody else around us has a king. We don't need a God that we can't see. We need a standing army. We need chariots. We need spears. We need swords. If we're going to be a great nation of great wealth, we're going to have to have a king like everybody around us. And remember how offended God was at that moment because they were saying, we need something other than you, which at its basis is idolatry. I'm going to put my hope in something else and someone else. My security and something or someone else. My peace and something or someone else. And that's the way this book began. And I want you to see that it's not ending any differently. Because at the end of this book, what you have is the king and a moment of peace. Remember, the last chapter said that David had come to this place at the end of his life where he was at peace, where all his enemies had been defeated And in that moment, guess what he decides to do? He wants to go and say, look at all that I have accomplished. That's the sin that occurred in this text. Normally, when a census was taken, it was because an enemy needed to be defeated and the people were being counted and divided up into the army. And listen, just having a census, that's not where the sin lied. There's a whole book of the Bible named Numbers that is about a census of the people of God. But God said when you take a census, there is a way to take a census. Number one, it was God who called the census. Number two, when a census was taken, according to Exodus 30, the first 21 verses, it talks about the fact that when a census was taken, you also have to recognize that these people, it's kind of like the firstborn children in Israel as well. A sacrifice had to be made. When these people are counted, a sacrifice must be made for every individual who was counted. We don't see any record of that occurring. Why? Because this wasn't God's idea, this was David's idea. And then lastly, the problem with what he did was, if you notice, even Joab and the commanders are looking at him and going, what are you doing? They look at David and say, listen, if God wants to, he can multiply a hundredfold everything that you see here. But why do you, listen to the question, why do you delight in this thing, he asked the king? Because at the end of his life, he was doing exactly what God warned would happen to all of us. The greatest struggle in our lives don't come in the valleys, do they? We are most susceptible to sin when we're on the mountaintop. That's why God would say to the children of Israel over and over when you get into the land of promise, you're going to walk into homes you didn't build, and you're going to have vineyards that you didn't plant. And in that moment, when you realize the fulfillment of God's promise, he said the greatest danger is that you're going to do what? You're going to forget me. And that I was the one that did it. And you know what David's wanting to do? He's wanting to count his men. He's wanting to count his chariots. He's wanting to count his spears. He's wanting to see just how glorious and grand a kingdom he built. And the book is going to end the same way that, you know what? Does it even matter how big the army is? Didn't we already establish that if God's not in it, guess what? You ain't winning. Greatness for a country isn't found in its riches, is it? In its palaces. It's whether or not it obeys and loves and worships the Lord God is whether or not it'll stand or fall. And David's sin is a sin of pride. And he let pride get a foothold. And listen, we all struggle with pride. Pastors struggle with pride. We get too worried about the numbers in our churches, right? It's my church as big as their church. We get tied up in budgets. We get tied up in all the things that we think will make us feel better. I mean, there are many pastors that struggle today, and listen, I've been there, I've done that, where I care more about what people think than what God thinks. You know how easy a trap that is? Whether we want to wait till the end to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or whether or not we get caught up in, man, I sure would like to hear it today. Pride. Businessmen? Listen, even Facebook, you can see where pride wells up. I mean, does anybody like to lose a coloring contest on Facebook? You're not following the... Oh, is it, is it still too early for that? It, yeah, okay. Go on my Facebook page, you'll get it. You ever get on there and you want to see how many reposts you have? How many people liked it? You want to get on there and see what people are saying? There's just that part of us, right? I mean, it's funny. Even, I mean, think about a picture. Think how prideful we are in our basic nature. We can put up a picture of a whole entire class of 1,000, a senior class picture. You get your yearbook. What's the first thing you're doing? Where am I in this thing? And then every page, you're mad because you think you should be on that page. There's a volleyball team. Where was that a good spike I had, man? Why they pick, you know? That's how we are, that we're so prideful. We have to constantly fight against the pride in our life. And I want you to know that pride is one of those things you better fight because it's out of pride that every other sin grows. Warren Wearsby, I mean, not Warren Wearsby, um, uh, William Barclay had it right when he said that pride is the ground in which all other things and all other sins grow. And it's the parent from which all other sins come. It's the prideful that God rejects. It's the humble that he receives. There's nothing wrong with David taking a census except in how he did it and why he did it. And I also think in this text we see not only should we not take sin lightly because God's not going to take sin lightly. We don't let pride get a foothold, but we also don't need to be so stubborn. Have you ever noticed that there are some sins that we do, it's eyes wide open? We don't even have an excuse of, I didn't know, I didn't understand. There have been times in your life, because I know it's true of me, it's got to be true of you as well, I would think, that you've actually asked advice of people, should I do this? And everybody tells you, I wouldn't do it. And guess what you do? How stubborn are we? And that's where David was. He literally goes to Joab and he goes to all the commanders of his army. That would have been a lot of men. And all of the men are saying the exact same thing. David, don't do it. They saw that it was his pride. They saw that this sin was going to be against the glory of God himself. And literally, they're telling David, don't do it. Stop. You're about to go off a cliff. Don't. And guess what? He's like, I said what I said. I'm going to do it. Nothing's more heartbreaking as a pastor than when you have people sitting in front of you. And and, and I have to go home and then remember, well, dummy, that's you. And you get a glimpse of how God feels when someone is sitting in front of you, and I'm not going to tell them, well, this is what I think you should do. I'm not going to tell them, well, you know, if I were you, maybe I... I'm going to sit down with someone and just say, you know, look, this is a biblical issue, so let's see what God's Word has to say. And sometimes you can sit down with them, point out to them in the Scripture what is right, and then they're going to say that three-letter word that is so horrible in the life of believers. But, But they make me happy. But if you knew how miserable I am in my marriage... But if you knew that I, I just don't really have many choices, and, and none of them look good, so I'm going to choose this one because it looks good. But, but that's what we call in the Scripture, that's, listen, that's, that's high-handed rebellion. It's one thing when your children do something not fully understanding what they've done. It's another thing when you tell them to do something, and they look at you and say, no, I'm going to do it anyways. That's when you choke them out, right? I mean, no, you can't choke them out. (laughs) Boy, we have to watch these hearts of ours because they stray, and we refuse to listen to wise counsel. And David was too prideful, too stubborn to listen to anybody, and he forgot that God works through people often to warn us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. To admonish us to walk with Christ. I want you to see, secondly, the other thing that makes up this glimpse into David's heart is he had a heart that was sorrowful. That's what we need a heart that's sorrowful, because we have a heart that strays. And when we talk about a heart that's sorrowful, I don't just mean a heart that feels, a heart that senses when bad things happen. I'm talking about a mourning over sinfulness. When you go to the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, when you read them, I want you to read them this way. Every time you ever read them, they are a description of a person who belongs in the kingdom of heaven. If you're a citizen of heaven, this is a description of who you are. That's the Beatitudes. And listen to how it begins. You realize that you are spiritually destitute, that you have nothing good to offer God. When it comes to spirituality, you have zero. Blessed are the poor in spirit, isn't that what it says? That poor is like, I can't get by unless someone outside of me helps me. That's how poor we're talking. Another way to say it, New Testament, I need a righteousness, I don't have any. And if somebody doesn't give me some, guess what? I can't stand before God righteous. That's how destitute we are. All we have is sin to offer. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they and they alone will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Then it turns around and says, and blessed are those who mourn over sin, right? Blessed are those who mourn. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the recognition that I have nothing and I am no one and all I have is this mess to offer to God and then we mourn over the condition of our hearts and the condition of our lives. And he says, and those who mourn, they and they alone are the ones who will be comforted. You show me a believer, I'll show you a person that mourns over sin, that is sorrowful, Over sin. It doesn't mean that they won't have moments where they choose sin in their life, but this is what it means to be a man with a heart after God's as he realizes that we must mourn over sin. And when David committed this sin once the numbers came in, it's so funny because this is what happens to us over and over. We think if I can have that thing, if I can get what I think I need, the moment we have it, what? (laughs) It's nothing. And it didn't give us anything like we thought it would give us. And rather than glorying in himself, he realizes what an affront it was to God. And it says literally that the heart of David attacked him. That's what it means. It says that it attacked him. It condemned him. It's the same word in the Old Testament that David, it was used of David when he killed the bear and he struck the bear and when he attacked the giant and struck the giant, that's the same word that it says here. That, that's what happened to his heart. That his heart attacked him. It's what we would call in Scripture is conviction. And listen, conviction is a terribly difficult thing because it hurts when we get convicted. But I want you to praise the Lord for it because it is one of the greatest assur- assurances of salvation that you possess. Because the Spirit of God living in you is going to convict you. You show me a man who is following after God, who wants to know God, has committed his life to God, I'm going to tell you this. God won't let him be comfortable in his sin, and he's going to convict him. And David immediately gets what he thinks he wants and realizes, I'm a fool. Anybody been there? An affair never feels good the next day, does it? The lying and cheating never feels good the next day, does it? After we cuss someone up one side and down the other, and we see our kids cowering in the corner as we lose our minds, and we see our spouse crying, it never feels good, does it? And in that moment, you thought it would. You thought it was righteous indignation or something. But then very quickly, you start to realize, what have I done? And not only must we mourn over our sin, we must have a sorrow that leads to repentance. It's not enough to be sorry that we sinned. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to turn here, because I want you to see it, and I want you to read, go back and read it for yourself later and remember and, and put to memory this truth that, that really matters in the heart and the life of a believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Listen to what it says. Or I'm sorry, 7 through 9. I'm sorry. No, it is 9 and 10. I've got to get there. Hold on. 7, 9 through 10. Listen to what it says here. Hold on, I'm in 1 Corinthians. I was thinking, that ain't right. Here we go. Listen to what it says. Paul, writing in the Corinthians church, he says, I now rejoice. So Paul's saying, I'm happy about this. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world only produces death. You see, Paul says there's two types of sorrow. And God is trying to make us recognize today that it's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. Imagine if you were in an abusive situation and someone hits you and says, I'm sorry, but then they hit you again. And they say, I'm sorry, but they hit you again. It's not going to take long and you're going to go, wait, time out. You're not what? You're not sorry. That's a worldly sorrow. I got caught. That stinks. Now I have to suffer a consequence. I got caught. I'm embarrassed that I did this in front of everybody. That's not the sorrow God's looking for. God says a sorrow that honors him, a sorrow that is part of his will, is a sorrow that leads us to repentance, to a change of life, a change of direction. Because if there isn't change, then there isn't real godly sorrow. He says this is what it must be, and in the heart of David we see it because as soon as he gets it, man, his heart attacks him. That he numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned, and he doesn't say I have sinned, then leave it at that, that's what he said with Bathsheba and with Uriah, but now he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take the iniquity away of your servant, for I have acted foolishly. Now, most of us would love it if it just ended right there, if that was the end of the story, right? I did it. I said, I'm sorry. God, let's move on. But I've told you this more than once in this story of the life of David. That's not how it works, is it? Because not only has he gotten to a place of repentance and a place where he seeks God's forgiveness, but we also, not just must we mourn over sin and must have a sorrow that leads to repentance, but if we're really in repentance, we must accept what sin brings and its consequences. Let that sink in. Even forgiven sin brings what? Church, are you hearing me? Even even forgiven sin, once he sought forgiveness, you're going to find that God has forgiven him, but there's still going to be a consequence for sin. Choose wisely the life and the road and the steps that you're taking. Every choice that you make in this life is important. Why? Because all of it is leading you to God or away from God. Every choice and situation is going to bring about Consequence. I love the way one pastor said it. I can't say it any better, so I'll use his words. And and it, it really, the the deeper you think about this, the greater it is. A preacher once said, "Know what you sow, so you won't weep when you reap." Let that sink in. Know what you sow. That means that you have to recognize that every decision is you putting a seed in the ground that is going to grow into something. So know what you sow. If what you're sowing is telling your children, you know what, you're stupid. Okay? Put that seed in the ground. If you put an orange seed in the ground, what do you expect? If you put a lemon seed in the ground, what do you expect? If you tell your kids they're stupid because you're angry and it makes you feel better, put that seed in the ground. What are you going to get? They'll live up to your expectation. We could sit here and play this all day. Put adultery in the ground. Put lying in the ground. What do you think good is going to come out of any of that? If you plant bad seed, you're going to get what? You're going to get bad fruit. And he says, know what you sow so that you don't have to weep when you reap. Because sometimes we're just dumbfounded and devastated. How could my life have gone this way? I can't believe it's over. Really? You, you cussed at him every day. Really? You, you treated them horribly every day. You cheated. You, you, uh, how did you think it was going to end? I'm going to plant a seed of laziness in my job. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I got fired. We blame everybody else. That's how it is. You reap what you what? Did God not say that was a law as much as the law of gravity or any other? Because that's how consequences work, and we must accept the sin that sin brings consequences. Don't ever think for a moment that sin doesn't carry a price tag with it. Don't ever think, I'm going to get away with sin. Where there is sin in your life, I promise you, it is robbing you of joy, it is robbing you of peace, it is robbing you of contentment. It is bringing bondage and pain and misery, not just to you, but to everybody around you that it is affecting. And to think any differently is so foolish. And I want to deal with the other thing that everybody, commentators, they want to just go by here. Because the natural question becomes, so you're telling me God killed 70,000 people because of David's sin? No, I want you to remember what it said in verse 1. God's judgment was already coming upon who? Israel. It wasn't for David's sin that these 70,000 died alone. It had everything to do with their own sin as well. David was just the mechanism that got that judgment going and got it started. And the devil played his role and David played his role. But God in his sovereignty accomplished what he said he would in the first verse. That leads us to the last thing and it's really where we want to hang out and that is a heart that's hopeful. We all have a heart that strays. We all need a heart that's sorrowful with godly sorrow but my biggest prayer is that all of us have a heart that is hopeful because in this text we clearly see the gospel of Jesus Christ if we will pay attention and see it because what we find in this text is is first of all that salvation would come through grace and mercy. I find it so interesting that David says to the Lord, he was troubled, he goes and says, listen, I've sinned and not just sinned, but I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now please take the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. He wants God to take away his sin, but the reality is, guess what? The death of 70,000 isn't going to take it away. You're going to find, as we keep going here, that David is going to go on in verse 17. And look at what he says. He says in the beginning, take away this iniquity. But then he says further, the Lord spoke to the Lord in verse 17 when he saw the angel was striking down people. So David's watching these people. He's knowing they're dying. And he says, it's because of my sin. Listen to what he says. Behold, it is I who sinned. He said, it's I who did wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But you know what the reality is? We see in David a heart of a shepherd who is calling out for God, spare the sheep and strike the shepherd. But there is a reason why God won't answer that. Because King David can't save humanity. Because if God struck King David dead in that moment, who would David be dying for because of whose sins? His own. He couldn't have saved anyone. Folks, that's why we can't save ourselves. That's why I can't save personally any one of you because I am sitting under the same judgment as you. The wage of my sin is what? What's the wage of your sin? Death. If we both stand before a judge, I can't say, well, give me his death because he's going to say, no, no, you're going to have to die for yourself. You can't die for him. You're under the same judgment as him. And so when he offers up himself, God doesn't receive it. When the 70,000 men die, that doesn't stop it. There is another sacrifice that has to be made. And that's what you get to in verse 18. So Gad came to David that day, the prophet, and said to him, Go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord commanded. Aruna looked down on him and saw the king and his servants crossing toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant?" And David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people of God. So you see, he recognized that his sacrifice, that his death would mean nothing. And he says, but if I build an altar on this place and I sacrifice an acceptable animal to the Lord, it'll at least be what? Covered, right? That's the atonement, isn't it? He said, I've come to buy the threshing floor in order to build an altar. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, he says, Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes and oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No. But I will surely buy it from you. I'm not going to let you give it to me. He says, but I'll buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Underline that. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and he built an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. Folks, the picture of the gospel is so clear there, if you'll just step back and see it. Because salvation, it can only come through grace and mercy. God reaching out and giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. That's mercy and grace, right? The whole spectrum. Not only does he not give me what I deserve, he gives me everything I don't deserve. It's incredible when you put those two together. And David realizes that if salvation is given to me, it won't be because I earned it. It won't be because I deserve it. There's nothing I've I've done to buy it. He just lays himself in the hands of God. Isn't that what he said when the plagues came? God gave him a choice. That never happens in Scripture. I used to hate when my dad would say, son, go out and get a switch. And you're like, man, for real? You're thinking if I get a real big one, it'll break my leg. If I get a little one, it's going to be a big old welt on my leg. You're out there trying to find the perfect one, Right? It stinks having to pick your own consequence. Only time in Scripture we see that God offers this to them. And what is David's response? He said, listen, I don't want to choose. If it's a famine, it puts me in the hands of men. I have to go beg food from another country that probably hates us, and it's just going to be worse. And If I go to battle with another army, the peace... It's gonna come on the heels of a surrender to a king that I don't wanna put myself in the hands of man for judgment. What does he say? He says, I wanna fall into your hands, God. Why? Because you're merciful. He knew that in God he could find grace and compassion. And he says, Listen, if I'm going to be judged, let it be by God. And so God rejects his offer to stand as a sacrifice because he can't. The men that died, died because of their own sins. And now he's left with the only thing he had in the beginning grace and mercy. Spare the sheep. Strike the shepherd. Salvation would come through fulfilled promises. Let me read you again what David said. Let your hand be against the shepherd. Boy, does that not resonate the gospel. He was close. (laughs) He just didn't understand that there was a great shepherd who would come one day. Who was without sin. Who wasn't a son of Adam Who could rightly pay the price for sins? And one day the shepherd would come and would lay down his life for the sheep. He said, Let your hand be against the shepherd. These sheep, what have they done? Punish me. But David wouldn't or couldn't do that. His own sin stopped him. But in that field on that day, I want you to realize that God looked backwards in history and forwards in the future, and you know what he saw that this place this field was very important mount moriah you know what it was it was the place where abraham came and offered his son as a sacrifice you remember that when he went to thrust the knife down into his son what happened god said stop why he says because i have a sacrifice I have a ram. Let him go. This ram will die in his place. Remember that? It was right here on this location. This location that he was about to purchase would become the very site where the Holy of Holies would sit. Where the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement would be able to go to Mount Moriah, to Jerusalem, a Jebusite. That's the original people of Jerusalem. He's sitting where the temple of Solomon is going to stand one day and where all the sacrifices will be made to atone for the sins of mankind. But look further in the future because right outside that temple, right outside that city wall, still on Mount Moriah, guess what else is going to occur? The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the shepherd who can give his life for the sheep, will say, don't strike the sheep. Strike the shepherd. And our forgiveness will be bought in that very place where David stood. And nothing more fitting could be said by the heart of David because As we look at this issue of the hope that he had, it would come through grace and mercy. You see the fulfilled promises of all of Scripture pointing to this one field, this one place. This site would be where many would come and find mercy and hope and salvation. But salvation, David realized, would also come at a costly sacrifice. What does it cost you to be saved? It ought to boggle your mind that the God who created you would send his beloved son who was innocent and without sin to come into this world of brokenness and sin. And he would live the life that you and I could not live. And one day he would lay down his life for you. It wasn't taken from him. His father asked him to go and be the sacrifice, the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And guess what Jesus said? Yes. Tell me salvation isn't costly. Go watch the passion of the Christ and tell me salvation wasn't costly. And David was right when he looked and that man said, listen, if you want to make an altar and an offering, I have oxen, I have the yokes, I have everything that you need to make this offering. And what does David say to him? I will not make an offering to God, a sacrifice to God that cost me what? Nothing. nothing, because a sacrifice that costs nothing is not a sacrifice at all. And folks, it ought to change the way that we look at life and ministry. If the church in America would have the heart of David here a heart that is hopeful that believes that you know what I can sacrifice to God and I can give everything to him and I can trust him with my everything and you know what I'm going to hold nothing back from him that is a far cry from where we are as a church today where we are as a church today is give me my convenience We're making the same mistakes as they did in the Old Testament. We're taking and living everything for ourselves, and if there's anything left, guess what we say? God, here you go. After this, and after that, and after that, and after that, and after I pay my bills, and after I'm done with sports, and after I do, and on and on we go, and we never leave room and margin to say to the Lord, I want to live a life that shows sacrifice for the sake of other people. Faith that does not require sacrifice, folks. It isn't faith at all. Do you believe that? Are you living that? Worship that costs you nothing. It isn't worship at all. Look throughout scripture. Where was it ever acceptable to come before God? And I'm not just talking money. I'm talking about being where you should be when God says you should be there. Among his people. Worshiping together the Lord Jesus Christ. That in your home you should have margin where you're having Bible study. Where you're discipling other people. If you're going to stand before Jesus one day, I mean, do you really think it's going to sound great at the end of time when he says, listen, there's one thing I told you to do. Glorify me. You can do it in your worship. You can do it in making disciples. Tell me about the disciples that you made in your life. Show me the people that you witnessed to. Show me the people that you grew up in the faith. Show me the margin that you had in life to do the one thing that I ask you to do. Could you imagine standing before God? Well, God, I mean, I had a lake house. You can't pay for a lake house and not use a lake house. And the only day I had off was Sunday. And, you know, you got to work to pay the house off. So, I mean, I, I, I burned it at both ends, man. You got you to gotta work two jobs to pay for the boat and the, the house. and the. Do you, do you realize how that's going to sound at the end of time? As most of humanity is condemned to hell... For lack of a witness? Folks, I'm telling you. I want you to hear me today. Faith that costs nothing isn't faith at all. Faith and and worship that costs nothing, that sacrifices nothing, is not worship at all. A repentance that costs nothing. And see, that's what we want to say. We want to say, I said I'm sorry, but I didn't repent. I said I'm sorry, but I didn't change because we want to look at our lives and say, well, I don't know if I want to change that much. I don't know if I want to surrender that to God. There is no repentance that doesn't cost. Your commitment to God is going to be costly. And let me tell you, as a pastor in a church with many ministries, ministry that costs nothing, it accomplishes nothing. See, here's what's frustrating as pastors is we're expected to involve people in ministry, but here's the thing. we got to put the bar right here. I'm not going to come to any training. I'm not going to come to practice. I'm not going to teach. I mean, if I teach, that means I'm committed to be there the majority of Sundays. I've got other things going on in my life. So what do they want us to do? They want us to just put the bar as low as we can get it so we can get anybody with a pulse to just step over it. Does that look like what we're talking about here? I don't know how to offer you a Christianity that costs you nothing. Because it's not Christianity. I don't know how to offer you something that isn't going to change your life Or your priorities. Because that's exactly what Jesus came to do. As the musicians come, let me just finish with this statement. If you don't hear me anything else, hear me on this. Write this down. Love is the costliest of all undertakings. I want you to remember how simple God is towards us when he says, there are two things that I want you to obey. I want you to love the Lord your God. How? With everything, right? That means everything. That means we sacrifice our lives to Christ to fulfill his mission. I'm not asking you to quit your jobs. I'm asking you to witness on your jobs. I'm going to lose my job. Okay. Okay. He's going to smile while everybody goes to hell? I didn't say you had to go in there and set up a tent revival and put up a speaker and not do your job. But you have a house and you have a dining room table and you can invite people that you work with to your house. And guess what? They can't tell you what you say and don't say at your house. We got to get back on track, church. COVID has only made it worse. Look at look. Look at this. 3 years ago this room was full. Where is everybody? Why has it suddenly become acceptable that you know what? I can work at home now? So that means I can work at the beach now or I can work I don't know what everybody's doing it drives me crazy. I got to be honest. Because it's like we're saying now, well, that's just too big a sacrifice. It's not. It's not. It's going to cost us to win people to Christ. It's going to cost us to advance the kingdom of God. Why? Because love. Do you love people? Do you love God? If you do, love is the costliest of all undertakings. Parents, you understand that, don't you? You'd move heaven and earth. To love your kids. We need to let that branch out. And get beyond our four. And get to a world in desperate need. But we'll never get there without cost. Father, we just, we praise you. Because you set the example, Lord. You're not asking us. People can get mad at what I said today. It doesn't matter. Because you've lived out this example before us. Lord, if we do this, we won't be doing anything besides being like Jesus. You could have come into this world and lived the life of a king, but you came as a suffering servant. You could have had a palace to lay your head in, but you chose to not even have a pillow. Lord, you showed us what it looks like to leave the comfort of heaven. To come to this broken world. A world that was hostile to you. That rejected you. So Lord Jesus, I just pray that as we look at your life, you would convict us to ask the question, how much does my life look like Jesus' life? The Bible says that all of us are being made into your image. That all of us are following you in the places that you're going, Lord, don't let us follow from a distance. Convict our hearts. Lord, today there are many in this room, they find themselves in that place where sin has ensnared them and overtaken them. I pray for freedom today. Lord, you would convict their hearts and they would have a sorrow that is true sorrow that leads to repentance. That today people would be forgiven and set free of the sins that have imprisoned them for far too long. Lord, may they cling to the cross of Christ. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are lost today that if they don't know you, they would repent and believe and follow you. Lord, they can pray for change. Not that they would change, but God, that you would change them, that they would turn from the way that they're living towards the path that you have for them. And Lord, you will give them everything they need for life and godliness. Ask them. Lord, to repent, let them hear your call. Lord, may they believe that you're the only way to salvation. It's not works, it's not church. It's surrender and it's repentance and it's believing that you took our place on the cross and you died our death and you were buried and you rose again and Lord, may they surrender to you today. Let them pray right where they are for repentance, change, forgiveness, freedom. May they follow you. Lord Jesus, do business in our hearts today. Don't let us leave here the same as we came in. In Jesus' name, amen.